The world has always been managing crises. From armed conflict to climate change and pandemics, the United Nations is the place where the international community gathers to solve them. On April 11, 2023, the Cleveland Council on World Affairs hosted the UN Undersecretary General for Global Communications, Melissa Fleming, who shared an insider's perspective on managing such crises. She explained the role of the United Nations and how it is working to improve lives across the globe. She discussed the ongoing war in Ukraine, the climate crisis, the dangers of disinformation online, and provided insight into how the UN is tackling such challenges today. Please enjoy the forum. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you, Karina. And yes, indeed, I went back to Oberlin after 37 years of being away. It was so, I had been, yeah, in war zones and refugee camps. So I, it wasn't an excuse not to go to the alumni gatherings, but it was. It was unfortunate. Um, I really missed it, and it 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 felt like coming home. So it's also my first time back to Cleveland in 37 years, and I'm I'm really delighted to have this interest um, in the United Nations and what we do. And I think that's very much thanks to the world, the Cleveland Council on World Affairs, which um, you know I I just am so inspired by the tradition of it and. Um, the, the, the women who founded it. Um, so today, though, I'd like to just bring you on a tour. I can't tell you everything that we're grappling with at U the UN because we would be here well past midnight. But just uh, to start, and I'm going to show you a few images along the way um, just to kind of capture your imagination because, you know, we know I mean, maybe, you know, when you turn on the news, uh, it's very clear the world is in crisis and it's multiple and they're cascading challenges. Um, we have war, uh, we have climate change and we have such division and also inequality. Um, a, a resurgent nuclear threat and taken together, unfortunately they brought us even closer to catastrophe and even closer than at the height of the Cold War. So many of you may be, um, remember the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists? Uh, they published this doomsday clock. The last time it changed is when they changed it because of climate change, um, before they just changed it uh, a couple of months ago to 100 seconds to midnight, uh, 90 seconds to midnight, but then, yeah, it became 100. Um, it turned a little bit back, but the Secretary General of the UN has said that this clock is our collective alarm clock and that we need to get wake up and get to work because the world um, is moving faster than ever, but in the wrong direction. Um, there, and COVID-19 exacerbated many uh, much of our progress, and then the progress um, started to go into reverse. Uh, we've seen extreme poverty and also hunger. Um, uh, rising for the first time in decades. Um, we've seen mounting conflicts, um, not least the senseless war in Ukraine, which is wrapping up the danger. Also, we have a record number of people forcibly displaced from war and persecution, 100 million people. And catastrophic climate change, this is a picture from Pakistan uh, not too long ago, um, is inflicting enormous damage around the world. And so nearly half of humanity is living in a danger zone. Um, and that means they're more 15 times more likely to die from the results of climate breakdown. The survival of our planet and also because been very linked, the survival of our humanity is at stake. Um, and it seems sometimes that the world is just kind of numb and incapable of decisive action, even though the plans are really out there. I mean, the, pro, the, the blueprints. Um, and unfortunately, from what we're seeing at the UN perspective in UN headquarters is the spirit of international cooperation being is under threat and just when we need it most, because also what we saw during COVID is no country can 
grapple with any one of these big challenges alone. Um, so we have to work together. Um, and we do believe that the United Nations is our best bet to do that. And a little bit of a review and just to celebrate another birthday, because this year we have this, we, cel we are celebrating 75 years of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And this is the declaration that is that laid out for the first time rights that apply to every single human being. And these are the rights to life, to liberty, to security, to equality before the law and freedom of expression. Also, the right to seek asylum, to work, healthcare and education, and many more. And the authors of that declaration lived at a time of great resolve. Um, and back then, the world dreamt of a better future, of nations coming together to solve problems and striving in tandem for a prosperous future, of rivals resolving disputes peacefully and putting an end to the horrors of conflict. And as you know, the UN was founded for that very reason, uh, to bring the world together, to sit at the same table, and to never again see the scourge of war um, erupt anywhere. Um, so we try, I mean, day in and day out. Uh, this is our General Assembly um, uh, to talk, um, to work together, to try to solve the world's problems. Um, also, the UN itself is made up of tens of thousands of dedicated people working tirelessly on behalf of humanity. The Secretary General just tweeted this a couple of days ago. Um, and, you know, doing what we can to improve lives across the globe. We deliver humanitarian aid. Um, we, we work to combat diseases um, and to bring peace, progress, and justice for all. It feels like we're working, though, to tackle a million problems right now. And let me just tell you, though, about three of them that are big priorities for us. Um, one of them, of course, is the war in Ukraine. And uh, the war in Ukraine, um, the other one is the, the climate crisis, and the other is the threat to information integrity, a nice way of calling mis and disinformation and hate speech that are um, really uh, committing kind of mass destruction on our um, digital platforms. These are the big three, as I see it, three and most intractable crises that is dragging the world down on all fronts and holding back progress on our wonderful sustainable development goals, um, the sustainable development goals that are really a blueprint for a better world, um, very much linked to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, you know, if implemented, uh, you know, things would be really good uh, for people. But um, let's start with Ukraine. So for more than a year, um, as you know, and many Ukrainians have come here uh, to Cleveland, and you've welcomed them, and they found sanctuary. Um, but they've been living through untold suffering. The Russian invasion has unleashed devastating violence. We've seen direct attacks on civilians that made death, destruction, and displacement really the horrific new normal. We've seen strikes on vital infrastructure um, that brought water, energy, and heat shortages to a brutal winter. I mean, really bombing um, heating. Uh, so really civilian targets that should be untouchable in a war. The UN is collecting evidence of war crimes. Um, and we've found that there have been hundreds of enforced disappearances, also arbitrary detentions. And we also know that hundreds of schools and also hospitals have been destroyed. And we know that 17 million people now need aid. That's like, that's 40% of the population that needs humanitarian aid. A similar number aren't getting enough to eat. And half of all Ukrainian children have been forced from their homes. Um, we're worried about the unaccompanied children um, because there's been lots of family separation who are at risk of violence and exploitation. And as you see from this picture that was early on um, but uh, is still occurring, 
Um, eight million people have fled the country. And eight million, it's really, it, it's an incredible number. Um, and most of them were taken in by the neighboring countries. And most of them are women and children. And most of them are um, looking at their phones every day for news of their fathers, their sons, um, and their husbands, hoping that they'll still be alive on that day. Um, so life is a living hell for Ukrainians. Um, and yet the pain of Ukraine, uh, the Ukraine war, it reaches also far beyond the borders and it's impacting people all over. Um, we've felt ripple effects um, in geopolitics. Um, we have seen a resurrection of old fears of nuclear conflict, it used to be unspeakable. Um, and we're a conjuring nightmare also of a wider war. Um, also, the global economy is suffering, and the war has slowed down our post-pandemic recovery and made life more expensive for everyone. Uh, we saw that food and energy prices soared, and we have spiraling inflation, not all linked to the war in Ukraine, but some of it is attributable. So we are working on this crisis as the UN on multiple levels. The Secretary General um, is leading efforts, first of all, to lead uh, to ease global food insecurity. And there are many, I don't know if you've heard of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, but this was a breakthrough initiative that the United Nations and also with help of the Turkish government has now enabled more than 20 million metric tons of food to uh, global supply chains, which is um, something that is, I, I think most of us didn't realize that Ukraine was really a breadbasket for many parts of the world. And there are many countries, um, poor countries, middle-income countries that were so dependent on grain from Ukraine and also fertilizer from Russia. So the part of the Black Sea Grain Initiative is also to unlock, because the sanctions on Russia have, had made it impossible for them to export their um, their fertilizer, even though it was supposedly um, not sanctioned. But um, so this is part of the effort as well. So one success, and we also believe that this Black Sea Grain Initiative positions the UN as well. Um, you know, obviously, we all want peace to come, and so at you know at that day, the the you know. The, uh, Mr. Guterres is able to pick up the phone and speak to leaders and the leadership in Russia, and he goes to Ukraine and speaks to them very often. So hopefully this day will come soon because, uh, you know, again, the UN was founded on the promise to save future generations from the scourge of war. And it's really painful um, to see that the UN itself and the UN is is its its, its nations. Um, weren't able to do that because one of its members, a permanent member of the Security Council, um, broke the rules of the Charter. Um, so the, inter the UN Charter is coming back into focus. We believe it's more than just words on a page. It is um, pr the principles that are the core of the United Nations. And you know, we live at a time when also, and just moving out from Ukraine because 2 billion people are impacted by conflict and humanitarian crises. Um, I was just speaking to one of somebody here about the, the Afghanistan and, um, and to you about the Afghan refugees who've made it um, to Cleveland. Um, just, you know, right at, you know, jumping over one woman you told me about had just jumped over the wall, was lifted over the wall, a student at Kabul University and is now able to to study here. But we're seeing um, a tragic scene uh, in Afghanistan now where the Taliban has um, created um, a, a, a very hard line um, environment and especially for women and girls who are not able to go to school. Um, and now there's a ban on, on women and girls working. Well, women working. Um, we're pushing back on that, but it is a struggle. We're seeing in Palestine and Israel that the two-state solution is growing more distant. In Myanmar, um, it is once more in the grip of fresh violence and repression. Haiti, 
not far from here. Violent gangs are holding the whole nation hostage. And in the Sahel, um, where security is crumbling further by the day. So we must work harder um, for peace in these places, and we are trying. Um, there are some initiatives at the UN, a, a proposed new agenda for peace, which should mu revitalize multilateral action to really work to prevent conflicts before they uh, ignite. Um, and we're trying to also recommit nuclear armed countries to renounce the use of nuclear weapons and to eliminate nuclear weapons from our world. So um, we need, of course, not um, less collaboration, we need more of it. And we need more collaboration, especially when it comes to refugees um, who are uh, still in desperate situations. Here are girls in Afghanistan wanting to study. But also when it comes to the climate. And we all know that humanity is sitting on a time bomb, running out of time to get this right. We just released um, a recent report by the International Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. And again, these scientists that form the, uh, the findings in this report um, report that climate change is irrefutable and that humans have caused almost all global heating over the past 200 years. Temperatures have risen faster in the last 50 years than any time in the last two millennia. And we believe it is, and we know it is actually now or never. We're at the tipping point and hurling past this 1.5 degree warming limit that we have set. And it could, if we get past it, we could get up to 2.8 degree rise. And we're already seeing the effects of even just the rise of 1%. Look at what's happening in California um, and in many parts of this country. Um, so yeah, we're, this is getting really depressing, I know. But uh, just a point about our biodiversity, too. We're choking our oceans with pollution, plastics, and chemicals. But we do have a new biodiversity treaty that where there is hope and uh, and a, a treaty for the oceans as well, where um, nations, you know, oceans are potentially going to be protected. And the IPCC report is a how-to guide to reduce emissions. This is one of the frustrations. It is actually really it's not impossible. None of this is impossible to get out of. Um, and so we know, we have the guidance and the how-to guide um, to stabilize global temperatures and save uh, humanity. Um, we have to have emissions, um, and fundamentally, we have to kick our fossil fuel addiction. And to replace it, generate electricity from clean and renewable sources. Um, so we're really urging fast-tracking this, businesses and investors and cities, um, and uh, we are also calling on developed countries to really hit the targets earlier. Also, wealthier nations helping others. There are many countries in the world who have very little, have emitted very little, little carbon, and yet they're suffering the greatest impact from climate change. And you think of some small island nations that actually are whose very existence is being threatened. So um, it's the, Mr. the Secretary General is very clearly calling for no more funding of coal, no more licensing of new oil and gas, and no more expansion of existing oil and gas. And part, calling on oil CEOs to be part of the solution um, and to present their plans to phase out fossil fuels and scale up renewable energy. Um, there is so much evidence that renewable energy can power our world, that it does make economic sense, and it certainly makes climate sense. Um, so um, we have, we have the, the blueprints, we have the plans, and as with peace building, collaboration is our only hope to tackle the climate change. But this can't happen also, and this comes to, down to kind of my job. Um, I was introduced as leading global communications for the UN, which is a challenge. Um, it's a challenge. Uh, it wasn't always a challenge, but it is a hugely greater challenge in the social media age. So effective communication is really key to build trust um, and to galvanize the response. But 
a real surge in online disinformation that we have seen over the past years um, is harming our world. Um, it is poisoning our information ecosystems. And it's also putting a lot of our media out of business. I had this incredible meeting today with a couple of journalists who used to work for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And they told us that, you know, they, they, in the heyday, where they were still working there, and they're, they're relatively young, there were, what, 200, 400, 400 journalists. And, and, and now it's down, I mean, then it, when they left, it was something like 16. And now they've had, they're founding startups um, that are incredible new models. The Signal and Eyes on Ohio um, that is bringing, you know, public interest media for replacing the local journalism that is gone. Um, and so this is a phenomenon that's not just happening here. It's happening all across America and all across the world because the, uh, the rise of social media meant the demise of independent media that was reliant on um, the advertisers um, that then were taken away into the social media um, e ecosystem. Simply put, there are many factors also. Uh, classified ads, you know, all went online. And, and so we're, you know, we need to find new models for media that is trusted based on, you know, on good journalism and that we can trust. Um, we have seen, unfortunately, that lies spread on social media have leached from the margins into the mainstream. And that digital platforms, though, as well, are vital to the UN's work. I mean, I remember a time when I used to be a communicator for some of the organizations that you, Ambassador, introduced me as, as doing before the social media age. And there were only two ways for us to get our messages out. Things like this, standing in front of public audiences and speaking directly to people, and or speaking to journalists and hoping that what they reported was an accurate reflection of what we were saying. So when social media came along, we were really excited. Um, we could actually also take our content and communicate to uh, people directly. And we do have huge millions and millions of followers on UN social media platforms and people who are looking to us for the facts, um, for information, for inspiration. So that kind of keeps us going. But we have seen that the same, very same platforms have a dark side. And many tech companies don't care how they keep their users' attention. The algorithms, their business models, are actually designed to maximize engage, engagement. And what that means is that they often amplify toxic ideas and lies and hate. Um, you know, it's outrage, actually, that spreads faster on social media than facts. Um, and these recommendation en engines uh, drive people to, to content that is more um, radical. So hate, unfortunately, is on the march. We are seeing um, a lot of evidence of spikes in polarization. I'm sure you're seeing it in this country. Um, racism and violent extremism. We're seeing minority communities being scapegoated and targeted online and off. And I was um, talking to somebody here who works with refugees. Um, where is our lawyer? Um, who was telling me about uh, some of the lies being spread about uh, the immigrant community and the refugees here in Cleveland. Um, also, gender-based discrimination and violence are, are rampant. So it also fuels conflict, which we're very concerned about. So what are we doing about it? I mean, this is, this is actually um, a, a good kind of indication of the competition that we're facing on social media. Um, we're putting out information. The whole world has tur turned to a big UN conference um, where that report, the IPCC report, was presented. And all the news is about this report and the evidence that there is that climate change is real. And the roadmap, this is what we need to do about it. And what is trending in between climate crisis and climate action, climate scam. And this is people, this is uh, 
behind that climate scam hashtag is deliberate disinformation actors who are putting in content into the digital ecosystem that climate change is not real. So we're seeing this also fueling conflicts, and I won't go into that. And the UN is being attacked. I, I just, as I was preparing this slideshow, I just thought I'd give you a taste of some of the hate that we're getting all the time. Um, this is this is addressed to the UN. I mean, I get a lot of it personally. Um, you have to kind of let it glide over you, but it is really, um, unfortunately, um, causing a lot of distortion, and it's very difficult to be a communicator. But it's also very difficult to be a peacekeeper. Um, we did a survey recently that found that 44% of UN peacekeepers thought mis- and disinformation was having a critical impact on their work, and a sim similar number said it was, it was impacting their safety. So um, the same actors um, are spreading uh, lies about uh, climate action. So we're finding that we need to do something about it. And my team and I have been assigned to work on a uh, code of conduct on information integrity on digital platforms, which is something that is in the makings. This is this shows actually the um, what I just mentioned about the peacekeepers. And we're doing campaigns. We're fighting back. Um, the code of conduct is really going to be uh, a, a it's going to pressure the social media companies to take accountability for their business models. But at the same time, we as institutions, we as um, governments, we as organizations, as public health officials need to get better at communicating ourselves in the digital age. So this is an example of the Verified Initiative, which, um, and this is just a sample, um, we ran, it's a campaign that we ran during COVID-19 for two, two and a half years where we were injecting into the bloodstream in multiple languages content um, that would help guide people um, during the COVID-19 pandemic. So this is where we are. Um, I, I really want to leave you with some hope. Um, you know, the, the Secretary General gave us a similar presentation uh, recently and said to us at the end, all of us um, senior managers of, in his team were kind of gathered around him feeling really down. And he then said, please, though, please don't give up. We have a blueprint. We have the SDGs. We have, um, we have our UN Charter, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, and we have a new report that he, it's called Our Common Agenda that is going to be providing a kind of newer blueprint, a more supercharged blueprint for a future. People are demanding it. I mean, people don't want war. Um, some do, but most people don't. And most people want to live uh, in, our, in an environment that is clean and that is stable. And most people also want to live um, in an information environment where you know, they're getting information that is based on facts, that is civil, and that is a true reflection of our global public square. Um, so that's um, some hope there, I hope, to leave you with. And I'm really looking forward um, to your questions and our discussion now. Thank you. Thank you. Please remember that we will bring a microphone to you when you have a question. If you could also please identify yourself so that Ms. Fleming can know who is here with us in the room. And uh, myself, I'll be over on this side and Grace will be on this side. I'm going to take a question in the back first and move my way up. Hi, my name is Christopher Davis. And my question to you is about disinformation. Mm -hmm. um, what actions are the UN taking presently to deal with disinformation mm -hmm. from foreign governments? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. Um, and it's a, it's a real phenomenon. Uh, I know that we, we know that many governments are grappling with the defense. Um, so uh, gov there are 
some governments in particular are engaging in a lot of disinformation uh, around elections, as we know. We had that in this country. Um, now, around uh, the Ukraine war, trying to build different narratives, there's disinformation that is government-driven driven around refugees. Um, there are a lot of governments that are work, working to fight back. I've seen, in particular, um, European governments um, have told me that they've their foreign ministries have built up their capacities uh, to monitor, identify, pre-bunk, um, produce communication strategies, messages. It's really an information war. Um, it's a war of narratives, um, and it's it's one that, w that we need to get ahead of. What we're doing from our part on, at, at the UN is, first of all, um, advocacy towards with the social media platforms to help identify um, disinformation and the methods that they're using because it's not off it's not only when you see a kind of end product post you have to kind of follow the train and it's very often hidden behind um, behind kind of dark companies and fake uh, influencers fake news sites that are look like news to people but it actually isn't and there's something behind it so in in a way that you know the social media companies had put a lot of the onus on everyone else to identify and you know and 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 flag and report disinformation. We're asking them to take more responsibility. So that's one thing. Um, we're developing this code of conduct on integrity and public information on information integrity on digital platforms which will make very clear recommendations also to governments because governments are starting to regulate. Um, there's, not a, there's not going to be a, um, a one-size-fits-all. I mean, the, the U.S. has its First Amendment, and it's, um, you know, it, it, the U.S. will figure out its own way of how to, how to deal with this, but there is, I think, one bipartisan issue that everybody seems to kind of agree that, we need to do something about this and also the AI, that artificial intelligence. But there, the Europeans have a European Digital Services Act that is now being rolled out that could be a model for other parts of the world. Um, the UK has introduced legislation, Australia. And some of these, this legislation has had the effect that it has made the social media companies change certain things because they couldn't just change it for one country. So they had to change it for everyone. And, and in the UK, it's around child protection. Um, so, you know, we're, we're hopeful that this combination of things, in addition to media literacy, we think that every child needs to be taught in school how to, and every, every, every person, older people who are not as familiar with how to navigate social media and how to spot mis- and disinformation, um, need to have more education. And we have, you know, put out courses. We have a pause campaign. We have a Wikimedia course. So it's a multitude of efforts, you know. And finally, it's become a beat in journalism. Um, there are now reporters that are called disinformation reporters. And they're like investigative journalists looking in, doing the disinformation story. So it is, you see this, where does it come from? Where does it originate? Follow that back. Um, you know, what's what's the motive? Um, the Center for Countering Digital Hate, which is a an, uh, an organization based in Washington, D.C., tracked um, and did an investigation on the sources of COVID-19 conspiracy theories and disinformation and found that it was actually only 12 people who they called the disinformation dozen, who were responsible for about 75% of the false information on COVID-19 around the world, 12 people. Um, and these 12 people, if you Google it, you'll find the disinformation dozen, many, some of whom you'd be familiar with, um, like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Um, and they, some of them are making big bucks off of these conspiracies. Um, they're selling, I don't know, like supplements and um, and are, are really um, earning a lot of money. Um, and they shift their causes. They're some of the same people. So 
the more we uncover who these players are, um, the more we are also as citizens um, going to be wary and able to navigate our digital space. So thanks for that question. Yes. What, one moment, please. We have a question in the back with the microphone. Sorry, we have a, we have, oh, we have a, a system here. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Good evening. Thank you for your presentation, Jermaine Peña at Esperanza, Inc. Considering the global crisis, what can we do in Cleveland about the global crisis to support the people most impacted by it? Mm -hmm. I think it really depends on what you do. So what do you do? Are you, are you a student? No, I work with college students. Um, so I work in, um, let's say, higher education, particularly with the Latino community in Cleveland, um, but also serving students nationwide. Well, I think um, what I've learned in my career is that it's, you know, everybody has their own vocation, right? And some of these vocations are you know, very purely, you know, if you work for the United Nations, you could pretty much go to bed every day with a, a good conscience um, and look yourself in the mirror that you're spending your time in a, in a meaningful way. And so when I speak to, to kids, high school students, university students, I always recommend to them because they won't regret it if they pick a profession that is serving people, if it's medicine, if it's... Uh, working for refugees, um, but even, you know, journalism. Uh, there are so many noble professions, even working in, in, um, in, in politics and in public service. But um, so, but I also sometimes people say, you know, the, the numbers of, of suffering and of, it's just so big. What can I do? I think one of the most gratifying things is that when you just do one thing, um, you know, if you helped one refugee that can, enormously um, impact that person's life. Um, and that person's life will then um, be helped in, in a multiple multiple ways. Um, uh, you know, they will be able to maybe land a job and then they'll have the children and the children will grow up. And so there, it, it has a ripple effect. So um, no, no good deed is too small. Harriet Russell, I'm a cross-cultural strategist and I work with businesses and CEOs internationally. My question is, if 40%, as you mentioned, 40% of the journalists were impacted in their work by misinformation and disinformation, and also you mentioned that effective um, communication for change, you have to build trust. I do this in the business environment my question is, how can the people that I work with, one step at a time, one business or one CEO at a time, how can we interface with what you do in the UN to make a bigger impact in our global companies? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, what we always say is that we need whole of society approaches to, to solving our problems. And we actually have an, an, an initiative uh, called UN Global Compact that is um, an, an initiative that brings businesses um, to the UN um, and uh, around the sustainable development goals. So you have to, you know, you have to kind of pass a test to get part of, to, to be part of this association um, of the UN Global Compact. You can look it up online and to see how businesses could be involved. And it also gives recommendations for how businesses can also use the sustainable development goals in their business models um, and how they can incorporate, you know, uh, for example, net, net zero strategies or, um, you know, to have more, more sustainable um, business practices that actually we're finding uh, customers are demanding more and more. I mean, they want to know that their brands that they buy um, are, are sustainable, that the, company, the restaurants they go um, to eat at are treating their workers well, um, that the energy that they get is not harming the environment. So I think 
um, businesses are kind of waking up to more and more that, that um, it's actually in their own strategic self-interest um, to be sustainable. I was uh, specifically, I'm sorry if I didn't make it clear, specifically wanting to know in the global relationship development phase of building trust, mm. how is there also a part of the UN that, mm. that works with uh, the disinformation, uh, which creates unconscious bias mm -hmm. between cultures? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, uh, we, one of the one of our goals is to create, um, you know, civility and and unity. And um, so, when we see when we see um, bias, we we call it out. But I think we we want to work with the social media companies and the AI that's developing um, to also make sure that their designs do not fuel unconscious bias around race, around gender. Um, so I think there's a lot that you can build into the systems um, to to prevent, um, uh, you know, the kind of biases we see. I, I hope that that answers your question a bit. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. This has been very uh, enlightening and informative. Thank you very much. My name is Mary Ann Bernadotte, and I'm the Honorary Consul of Switzerland to the state of Ohio. My question is, how has the um, acquisition of Twitter by Elon Musk, by one individual rather than um, corporation, influenced this? You know, this whole situation. I, uh, I, is I is part of it, but it's a question of one person having a tremendous amount of power. Where you have, you know, Microsoft, Google, all the other, um, Facebook. That's you know, yes, you do have heads of the company but you still have um, shareholders to report to. How has this uh, acquisition affected the uh, entire, entire situation? I think it has been, I mean, from our, from our perspective, uh, we've seen a rise of hate, a rise of anti-Semitism, white supremacy. Um, it's um, a rise of conspiracy theorists, um, people returning to the platform who were banned for good reason, and um, we're very concerned about the blue check system, which um, we, I mean, the checks, blue che checks were a verification system that you are a real person, and now those are being removed, and instead you get the blue check if you pay a subscription. So we'll never, we'll not be able to navigate as well on, on Twitter going forward, you know, who is genuine and and who isn't um so it's yeah a lot of those comments that i put up on that's just it just keeps getting worse um since this takeover the staff the really good staff who were responsible for their the trust and safety team um for putting up guardrails moderating a lot of this um awful speech they're all gone they've all been fired so it's very concerning. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's the issue. It's a private company run by a billionaire who has a lot of power. Um, we continue to, you know, to to speak out to to urge, we do have very good relationships with the other platforms. We're sitting at the table with them. Very often they, they ask us for feedback um, and uh, we have dialogues. Um, we're not always in agreement and we're gonna be continuing to push, but unfortunately our, our main counterparts at Twitter are, are no longer there. So it's we're trying to regroup and to see how we deal with it. We even had a, a reflection on whether the UN should even remain. Um, we have something like 60 million followers, so it's a, a huge number of followers. Um, and we made the decision that we are staying on, on Twitter because of those followers and because we didn't want to give up the space to the haters because people do turn to us for factual information and for content that they find um, 
interesting and inspiring and that they want to then share and um, spread the word. So it's it makes us feel sad um, because it already was not a very, I mean, there was already was a lot of, um, uh, there were a lot of problems and there was a lot of mis and disinformation, but nothing like we're seeing today. I'm Natasha King from Garrett Morgan. I'm a senior. And I wanted to know what can we do as young people and scholars to help the climate change? Oh, you can do so much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have um, actually for, for individuals who would like to learn how they themselves can make a difference. Um, we have an app called Act Now, which you can download and you can sign up for it very easy. And you can then track your actions and you'll be part of our community. So there, there are definitely things that individuals can do to mitigate your footprint, uh, your carbon footprint. But there are also um, many professions opening up in this space, um, uh, environmental protection or renewable energy, um, the study of, of the climate. Uh, so I think there's much you can do. And you can also call on, you know, the companies that uh, that are in your ecosystem, you know, the clothing companies, the um, energy companies as young people, um, as the, the young people climate movement has been doing so effectively, um, you can call on them um, to change too. Hi, my name is Michelle Lee. I'm an undergrad freshman at Case Western Reserve University. Um, recently, we all did this paper on the SDGs and why or why not they aren't prioritized. And my question to you is, why are they so interconnected throughout not only the goals themselves, but also all the targets? And what's the thought behind it? Um, personally, I think as a nation, it'd be a little hard to navigate it. And I'm assuming you did bring up earlier that you are coming up with a more specific blueprint. But just as a whole, what was the thought process behind that originally? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. But it, it is, um, I think it was a really hard process to get the goals to make the world a better place down to 17. Um, simple goals that you could put on one beautiful pin and uh, and that where people would say, what are those? And, and they're very, you know, some of it is very simple. No poverty, no hunger, education for all, clean water, um, peace. You know, but and but what you realize is that when you take take out, remove one like education, um, there you know I I'm reminded of of um, you know, a refugee I met I met in a muddy camp in in Lebanon, um, and I always asked refugees when I visited with them you know what did you take when you fled the bombs and you could only take one thing um, and he got up and he ran to the back of his tent and came back with, it looked like a piece of paper that was covered in silk. And then he removed the silk and had, held up the piece of paper and it was his high school diploma. And he said, I took my high school diploma because my life depended on it. Without education, I am nothing. And I think that that's in a way an answer to your question because if you have, you have all of these children around the world who have no access to education, then what does that mean um, for our societies? Um, you know, people, I think, do you, do you know the Maslow's Pyramid of Human Needs? It's, it, it's so significant in this dimension and what, unfortunately, for so many people around the world, they remain at the bottom of the pyramid, just able to survive but not able to thrive. And that's what every human being wants to do. So I think that's why it's it's um, interrelated. If you don't have clean water, then nothing else <laughs> works either. Um, and if you're, Or if you're hungry, um, and if you don't have a clean environment or you have so much drought that you can't live where you're living. So it is all interconnected. And the beauty of the SDGs, when you see them in action, you go to a country and you see a UN country office, a UN country team, and they've worked out with the governments and the governments have all of their program targets linked to individual SDGs. And then there are all these, I mean, it's, it becomes very complex, 
and there are all these indicators um, and timelines, and so it's um, it's a progress it's a progress wheel, um, and we have to keep it turning. My name is Fareed Sadiq. My question for you is that the disparity in the refugees that came out of Ukraine versus the ones who came out of Syria, Afghanistan, and all the other countries, to the point where the government of Merkel was, you know, had to resign or get not re get reelected. The racism that exists because of that, it, and that exists even now. Haiti is still struggling, but Ukraine is getting all the money they need. I mean, how do you, as the UN? your responsibilities for the world, not for individual countries, but how do you get people and the governments to understand how badly the racism is impacting the refugees coming into Europe now, but the Ukrainian refugees are welcomed with open arms? Yeah. No, you, that is something that really bothers us, um, and it has had uh, a lot of effect, actually, on geopolitical relationships. Um, is, what African countries saw, what uh, Af Afghans saw, what uh, what was that um, what people from the Middle East saw was a Europe welcoming Ukrainian refugees with open arms. And the narrative went because they were white and Christian and they were not people of color. And there probably is some some truth to that. There is, though, you know, I have seen the neighboring countries of Syria take in millions of refugees. I've seen the neighboring countries of South Sudan take in, or of Somalia, take in so generously millions of, of refugees. So there is a certain tradition of helping the neighbor because of that relationship, because there are also family members, maybe there are ties, there are, so it's, it is a bit easier. Um, that said, you know, Europe did take in um, a million Syrians, and you're right to, to mention that Angela Merkel put her political career on the line um, when she welcomed um, so many refugees, and among them were also Afghans. Um, I, at that time, though, the Syrians were more welcome than the Afghans. The Syrians were more likely to be able to stay um, than the Afghans. So it is something that we always try to call out and to say, this is unfair. Um, and please, yes, fund the refugee situation, the humanitarian situation in Ukraine, but don't do it at the expense of the other situations. Thank you so much for your talk, Undersecretary General, and for this Q&A. Uh, my name is Graham Ball. I'm with USCRI Cleveland. Um, it seems to me that your job is one of the most important at the UN. I mean, communicating about these ideas seems essential to getting us all to be involved in solving them. Um, but, you know, you're communicating facts, you know, that are essential to hear. But like you said, the algorithm feeds on feelings. All right. And so how do you like take this massive global crises affecting millions and billions of people and distill them into a single story or a single piece of content? What do you look for in that content and, you know, to to work with the algorithm to get the message out? I, I, I'm going to use that. The algorithm feeds on feelings. That's very good, <laughs> which is true, um, which is true. And so we try to inject more feelings also. Um, you know, there's a saying, statistics are human beings with the tears dried off. And yeah, unfortunately, our communications is a lot of statistics. It's the statistics of human suffering um, or, you know, the data behind climate change um, and or development. And that, of course, you know, if you have policy, a, a policy audience, that's fine. But if you're trying to mobilize and engage people on social media, you have to try another way. Um, so either we do it through human stories, the people behind the numbers, or the people who are working to change. Um, I don't know if you ever encountered David Beasley, who was the executive director of the World Food Program, an American 
Um, he was a former governor of, of South Carolina, and he had this incredible ability to communicate about hunger. Um, like I used, he was like a like a televangelist for <laughs> for the UN. It was just he enraptured audiences in his southern accent, and he could convince anyone in in the South that that um, the World Food Pro Program of the United Nations was doing God's work. And therefore, you needed to donate and to, to help the hungry. So to have these kind of conduits also to audiences um, who they can relate to, because everything else is a, it's a real distant uh, problem that's hard to understand and far away and, and intractable and tough. So those are the two methods that we use. Hi, my name is Noah Alam, and I'm a high school senior. Um, I was wondering, with the rise of my generation of young Americans whose adolescence has not been defined by direct threats of war and have instead been bombarded continuously with domestic political conflicts in the media, such as the rise of Trumpism, how do you reach past this barrier and educate young individuals specifically on the necessity for their involvement in international affairs? Um, yeah. Well, we have <laughs> we we have um, a UN information office in Washington. My colleague Brendan is here with me from our office. Maybe you could chat with him also after. Um, and you know, one of the things that we're doing here in Ohio is is also outreach to universities. That was one of the reasons I went to Oberlin College, my alma mater, to speak to students. Um, that's I think why you're invited here. <laughs> so I think this is a fantastic a fantastic initiative to include students in these speaker series. I know that Brendan is going to Columbus, Columbus tomorrow to the Ohio State um, to speak to students. We have students here from Case Western too. So uh, I think that's great. So that's one way. Um, I think it, we need to do this this outreach so you get get to kind of meet us because I think that the UN can feel like a, a, you know, an institution that's that's hard to, that's not very human focused. Um, so um, I know that the U, the State Department is also really trying to get Americans into the UN system, and that they have a program um, to to try to bring in, especially you know, young people. There's a junior professional officer program um, that one can apply to. Once you have enough experience, um, there are internships. Once you graduate, there's also a possibility. But to get that interest in the first place, um, it is hard. Also, the you know the media landscape is very U.S. focused, um, and international news is is not really really there. So, yeah, I do think that some of these um, these global crises like climate is bringing um, young people's interest into into issues that affect us all all over the world. So, a couple of couple of ways. This will be our final question. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Zera Kalenka. I'm coming from Slovenia, and I'm a consul general here in Ohio. My question will be. Um, very, very good. This is the last one. I would ask, since we have a young audience here, which I applaud to the organizer, um, what would be your positive message to keep having faith in UN? Because we are hearing not only the conflict criticism, but like the UN is too big, too um, bureaucratic, too slow in, in reactions, corrupted, I don't know, peacekeeping is, is not what we expected. No, 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 but no, 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 but really, really, there are a lot of negative uh, criticism, and we all know why is UN, and uh, for us who have hope and think that it's fulfilling um, its role and its goals um, as much as you can, as institution, as individuals, working for the UN, uh, I would ask you to give us some positive messages uh, addressed to the younger generation to keep faith that UN is UN as, as it was formed and to follow the goals. Thank you. Thanks. That's a great, that's a great question. I mean, first, though, I'd just like to say, 
we do try to explain that the UN is made up of member states and the member states bear responsibility when they don't live up to UN values and when they break the rules of the charter. Um, this is especially poignant around peace and security. When, you know, when the UN works, we have, you know, the mechanisms there. Um, and it really, uh, um, you know, the, the member states are, um, take, bear a lot of the responsibility. They also bear a lot of the responsibility to fund us because, you know, sometimes there's, oh, the UN failed to deliver enough food to the hungry in Yemen, or for example, or it's all down really to, to, to funding and also to, to making sure that, um, that our humanitarians um, can, they know how to deliver, they know how to save lives, they know how to um, lift people up um, and to give them, um, to give them education, to give them um, the possibility to pursue um, a better life. It's it's it really does often come come down to a question of funding. So, the UN is imperfect, yes, um, because um, very often the masters are uh, the member states, and um, but uh, the UN is full of thousands of people who are working day in and day out, committed to make this world a better place, and um, I think it's really our only hope.